Good morning. How are you this morning? Are you well? I have to say, I know occasionally I, I will uh, encourage you in this way, and, and today is one of the times when I want to do that. Your voices and your uh, expression of worship this morning has been outstanding and uh, such a blessing to me. And as is often the case, I just found myself not singing so that I could enter into your singing with you. And I got to say that to hear your voices, and I could hear a few, I don't know that I could hear all the way over to this side of the room, but I could certainly hear those in my section and maybe even a few in this section. And to hear uh, older voices and and very young voices and uh, all that are in between was just such a wonderful, wonderful uh, joy for me as we worship the Lord together. So thank you. Thank you for blessing me and encouraging me. And I can only imagine if, if that was such an encouragement to me and perhaps to you on a human level, how, what, a, what, a, what a joy it must have been to God, right? To hear us uh, delight in Him in that way. So will you please, as we continue in worship, will you please take your Bible and meet me in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and would like one, there are some provided for you in the, under the seats around you. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 18 today. Uh, as we've been working our way through the book of Acts, uh, you'll notice that we've been kind of tracing the steps of the Apostle Paul lately. Lately, we've been tracing the steps of the Apostle Paul. For five chapters now, since chapter 13, uh, Paul has been the central figure in Acts, and he will remain so uh, through the end of the book to chapter 28. Uh, from one province to the next, one city to another, uh, Paul and those who've traveled with him, they've been sharing the message of the Christian gospel. They've planted some churches along the way, and Christianity uh, has spread into the Western world while advancing to the ends of the earth, even as Jesus said it would. Uh, Now, of course, Paul was instrumental in this ongoing expansion, and at this point in the story, he's nearing the end of of his second missionary journey. And so just to remind you, of this, this is a, a, just a rough map of this second missionary journey. So they began here in Antioch, and they took this path uh, all the way through. You remember they, they came here, and they were going to enter Asia, and the Holy Spirit said no, and so they were going to enter Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit said no. So they met, kept moving west until they uh, crossed over the Aegean Sea into the western world, into Macedonia, and made their way down to Athens. That's where we were last week. They were, uh, we left off with Paul in Athens, right over here. And so by this time in this trip, um, or by the time the trip is over, so you can see here that, that they're, they're, they're going to move from Athens to Corinth, and then over here to Ephesus, and they're going to sail back home. And by the time the trip is over, they will have covered about 2,800 miles, uh, they, they will have spanned about three years' time. Uh, right now, they are in the province of Achaia. As I said, they've, Paul has just left the city of Athens, and he's now in Corinth. 
And uh, as we will see, he is as motivated as ever. Uh, I think Paul is really a perfect example uh, of a life that's spent knowing Christ and, and making him known. And so, uh, so what I think we learned today from Paul's example is that when the reality of God's love in Christ grabs hold of your life, you cannot help but live it and let it be known. I want to read this with you. Acts chapter 18, and we'll read just 1 through 17, verses 1 through 17. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And they opposed him and reviled him. And he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles." And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again for our time in in the, the Bible. We want to thank you for the gift of the Bible. The gift of your word reveals to us uh, your heart and your will, your desire uh, for, for us, for all humanity, and the work that you are accomplishing in this world. We pray that today as we come before your word, you would enable our hearing and our understanding of it so that we might uh, receive it gladly and willingly and become, uh, uh, having learned from uh, its truth, would, would we become doers of it. And so help us in that way. Help us to learn 
from uh, our brother, the Apostle Paul, and to see if there are any similarities to his life and ours so that we may um, uh, kind of view our place in this world uh, as he did. So we ask you for your help in these things and more. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, so Corinth was the capital uh, of the Roman province of Achaia, located about 46 miles west of Athens, uh, near the southern tip of Greece. It was a city known for commerce and wealth and opulence. Uh, even today, as you may know, even today the word Corinthian uh, is a sign of luxury and extravagance. So when we talk about Corinthian architecture or Corinthian leather, for example, we just automatically know that is good stuff. That is high quality. That is very, very expensive uh, product. Uh, It was also a city known for immorality, known for all sorts of debauchery, You get a feel for this even when reading Paul's New Testament letters to the Corinthians, which he would write within a couple of years after this initial visit here in uh, in Acts 18. The people of Corinth were were messy. Uh, They were, in the the just very truest sense of the word, they were were very worldly. They They were caught up in the ways of the world. Uh, and as was the church that formed in that city. Uh, the, the Corinthian church, the Corinthian believers, uh, again, when you read through First and Second Corinthians, you, get a, you just get this sense that, that, um, that this church really tested Paul's patience. And, um, and his, he, he strived to help pull them out of that worldly mindset and into uh, the ways of the Lord uh, as they sorted through all sorts of baggage uh, in, uh, that they had received from the city of Corinth. Corinth was, you might say that Corinth was, was truly kind of the original sin city long before Vegas came along. Now while there, Paul met a husband-wife couple who had been pushed out of Rome under imperial command. Now, my understanding is that there had been a disturbance in the Jewish synagogues uh, in Rome, which resulted in Emperor Claudius expelling the Jews from that city. And so Aquila and his wife Priscilla were, were religious refugees who had been pushed from their home and had relocated to Corinth where they met the Apostle Paul. They became friends. Paul stayed with them and and he worked with them. All three of them were tent makers by trade. Now around this time also, uh, Silas and Timothy rejoined Paul in Corinth. Now you may recall how these three, Paul Silas, Timothy, these three had launched out together as a missionary team many months and many miles earlier. But when unrest arose in Thessalonica and Berea, the team sent Paul up ahead, remember, 
while Silas and Timothy stayed behind until things had calmed down. But in Corinth, they met up again, and many New Testament scholars believe that they brought with them a contribution to Paul's ministry from the Macedonian churches they had already planted, uh, which could help explain Luke's statement in verse 5 here, when it says that when they arrived uh, from Macedonia, presumably with this financial gift, Paul was occupied with the word. In other words, the financial gift from the Macedonian churches freed up more of Paul's time for ministry. And it's this phrase, occupied with the word, that I want to unpack with you this morning. Uh, To me, this is a very telling description of the Apostle Paul. It's the only occurrence in the New Testament where this word occupied occurs. It means to be fully engaged or fully engrossed in something. And the word word, occupied with the word, the word word is in reference to the gospel, to God's message of of good news to a lost and fallen world. I think sometimes when we read the Bible and we read the word word, we think it's referring to the Bible, but understand the Bible hadn't even been developed and formed yet. So the word meant the message, the Christian message. When Luke is writing that Paul was occupied with the word, it wasn't that he was constantly studying scripture though he knew Scripture very well. Rather, it means he was always looking to share the message of Jesus wherever, whenever, and with whomever he could. It indicates much more than than merely more time for ministry. I think it's a window into Paul's heart. I think it's what drove and motivated him. I think it's what made Paul tick. And so the question that I want to consider with you this morning is, in what ways was Paul occupied with the word while in Corinth? And what might we learn from his example? And here in this passage, verses 1 through 17, I see four things that describe his life in ministry. And they are, Paul reasoned with people who thought differently. That's verse 4. Paul focused his message on Jesus. That's verse 5. Paul persisted in the face of opposition. Verses 6 through 8. And Paul trusted Christ who was with him and had gone before him as we see in verses 9 through 11. First, Paul reasoned with people who thought differently. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, we're told in verse 4, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, of course, as you know, as we followed along, Paul's typical practice was to begin in the local synagogue, Whenever he came to a new city, he'd locate the synagogue and begin conversing 
with his fellow Jews. But what struck me about this statement is the word reasoned as it's translated in the ESV. The word means to dialogue. It means to discuss. And the very fact that Paul was trying to persuade them reveals how he often dialogued with people who thought differently. Because how does a person effectively persuade another uh, when fundamentally they are coming at something from two totally different points of view? I want you to think maybe even of an example from your own life, an instance where either you have persuaded someone or someone has persuaded you. Isn't it true that true persuasion generally occurs only after thoughtful, respectful, well-reasoned dialogue? There has to be a, a, a forum where you can put the thoughts out there and talk about it. And it's when we put ourselves in the other person's shoes, when we take the time to see the issue from their point of view, when we help them to see what they presently can't or won't, that's when persuasion is more likely to take place. Anyone in sales knows this well. Uh, I think back, or thought back this week on my sales experience, which seems like a lifetime ago, well over 25 years ago. First, I tried my hand at selling vinyl siding and windows, going door to door. Uh, Then I went into new and used metalworking equipment. And why I thought I could sell windows and siding, why I thought I could do that still escapes me. I mean, I was 20 years old, uh, living with my parents, What did I know about home ownership and maintenance? Same with uh, uh, metalworking sales, equipment sales. I had never machined or fabricated anything to that point in my life, unless you count building with Legos. Uh, And yet here I was trying to sell machine tools and fabricating equipment, sometimes for tens of thousands of dollars, to people who were three or four times my age in some cases. They'd been fabricating longer than I'd been alive. And so I quickly learned that my only hope of making a sale was not in trying to... It was not in telling them how to run their business... In other words, you should do this or you need that. It was not in, that was not the approach. What I learned instead, it was by presenting, it was by taking the time to learn their business, to learn what it is they needed, to learn the problems they were having in business, and then trying to match their problem with a machine that would meet it. Because at that point, the machine was selling itself. It stood on its own merit. My goal was simply to find a solution to their need. And when it comes to sharing the gospel, I think sometimes we could use a similar approach. 
by understanding that it may not be our place to tell them how to live their life and the decisions they have to make, but instead to try to understand their place, their points of view, the problems they're encountering, and then identifying the why. We have to understand that non-Christian people may have certain thoughts or beliefs that need to be addressed and they may not understand some of the theological words or concepts we're prone to use and take for granted. It's hard to persuade them toward Jesus if we don't reason with them first or if we fail to understand them. If you don't understand their reasons for thinking the way they do, please hear this. You may be monologuing at them, but you're certainly not dialoguing with them. Paul knew that if he was to truly persuade anyone toward a decision for Christ, he needed to first reason with them. with people who thought differently. Number two, Paul focused his message on Jesus. Paul was occupied with the word, verse five, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now being a Jew himself, Paul knew the Jewish belief in the Christ. Paul knew that the Jews believed in the Messiah. The issue for many Orthodox Jews is not, it's not about the Christ, it's about who the Christ is. For centuries, millennia even, Jewish people have been looking forward to the arrival of Messiah with great anticipation Their problem, though, both then and now, lies in their failure to recognize that Jesus is Messiah. Which explains why Paul focused his message on the person and work of Jesus. Now, I'm sure they discussed other things also, but notice that Paul always seems to bring the conversation around uh, to Jesus. That's a good reminder also. Because sometimes in our conversations with people, I think we can become distracted by secondary matters. For example, and again, if it's helpful to just think about conversations you've had recently or in the past. For example, sometimes our personal politics even come into play. Sometimes we convey, even unintentionally, that a person must hold a certain political view in order to be a true Christian. And so we talk politics. Or we talk uh, certain doctrines and we dismiss other doctrines. Or we engage in... Uh, we, we communicate this idea that the person has to engage in certain spiritual disciplines or, or maybe the person just has all sorts of, of odd questions, right? They just have all sorts of odd questions that, that honestly 
uh, lead nowhere, right? Those questions are just, they're just kind of circular. It's a circular conversation. It really leads nowhere. I can recount many occasions, more times probably than I, than I care, to rem- care to admit or remember. I can recount many times, I'm sure you can too, when after the conversation ended, I realized that we, we spent more time talking about Christian opinion than we did about Christ. But Paul, because Paul prioritized the gospel, everything else was secondary to the gospel. Paul prioritized the gospel itself and he wanted people to know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and is doing and will do, that he is the Christ. He is the the Messiah. He is the one of God's choosing, not one of many, but the Savior who came to seek and save the lost. He, he he, He gave his life to give us life because Paul wanted his fellow Jews to know and receive this good news, he made sure to focus his message on Jesus. Number three, Paul persisted in the face of opposition. Verse six reveals that the unbelief of the Jews regarding Jesus brought escalated tension between them and Paul to the point where not only were they opposing Paul's ministry, notice, they also began to attack his character. It says they reviled him. That is, they slandered, they maligned him, they spoke evil of him. Such vehemence and obstinance toward him and his message caused Paul to shift gears entirely. But notice, rather than withdrawing from his ministry of sharing the gospel, he simply redirected the efforts elsewhere. As we become more occupied with the word, I think there's a growing realization that not everyone will respond to the word favorably. The human heart, calloused by sin, grows hard toward the things of God. People oppose God's truth and the truths by which God shapes us and designs our lives. Fundamentally, sin is rebellion against God, so it can be very hard. It can be very hard just to speak with people about your faith. And harder still when when it goes unappreciated, or worse yet, when it's met with rejection or violence or even the defamation of our character. And what do we do in those moments? What do we do when, or how do we respond when people respond to us so aggressively and so with such rejection and vehemence? I think if we take our cues from Paul, we have to know when it's time to move on. We have to know 
when we, in this instance, with this individual or these individuals, it really is like talking to a brick wall. We read that he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm going to the Gentiles. And literally, culturally, you know, I don't have these tunic or, but, you know, literally it was like this symbolic act of shaking out your garment as a way of communicating, I'm done with you. I'm moving on. Uh, I'm not going to exert any more time or energy on you. And so the next time you're in that situation, just do one of these and move on. Paul had done his part. He had tried. His conscience was clear. Well, what about those Jews in Corinth? What about them? And Paul would say, Whatever became of those particular Jews to whom I testified, they could never say that they didn't hear the gospel or have a chance to come to faith in Christ. And so now it's on them. I'm innocent of their blood and I've moved on and I'm going to share this message with others who are more receptive. You know, I've told this to many of you. When, when I was, um, the summer of my high school graduation, I, I spent uh, doing street evangelism across Europe with about 75 other students and adult leaders. Uh, for about eight weeks, we hopped through about eight different countries, uh, including Scotland, uh, France, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Austria, Belgium, England. And we would roll into a city and we'd look for opportunities to serve, even just picking up garbage. We would walk, we would walk down the street, we'd knock on a merchant's door and just say, hey, is there anything I can do to help for you? Can I sweep out your, your shop? Can I unload boxes for you? Can I take out the trash? Whatever it was. Uh, and then we would uh, put on uh, a street theater. We would sing uh, songs. We would do carnival-like activities for the kids. And because each of these things was kind of uh, thematically centered on the gospel, we would then go and we'd talk to people about Jesus. And some people were very, very receptive, and some were not receptive at all. And and uh, for me, that was kind of my first experience. Uh, I was two years old in the Lord. And that was kind of my first experience of rejection, of not only do you not believe what I believe, and, and I don't understand that, but you're actually finding fault with me because of what I believe. Like, you're actually coming against me because of what I believed. And so we had to learn a sentence that has stuck with me ever since. 
And it goes like this. Successful witnessing is, just curious, how how about you complete that sentence? Successful witnessing is, okay, expressing the truth of the gospel, leaving the results to God. Very close to what I'm about to say. Successful witnessing is taking the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit while leaving the results to God. Taking the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit while leaving the results to God. And I think Paul, I think Paul knew this too. Because though some rejected him, others received him and his message. You see, Paul didn't allow the refusal of some to keep him from the receptivity of others. A man named Titius Justus, whose house, I just try to picture this. So Paul's in the synagogue. There's a big upheaval. Paul says, I'm done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles. And he walks right next door. And the man comes to faith. This guy named Titius Justice, he comes to faith. Another man named Crispus, who was ruler of the synagogue. So Crispus is here in the synagogue, and he's, and he's like, I'm going with Paul too. And all of Crispus' household comes to faith. Because Paul persisted in the face of opposition and didn't let it deter him, because he took the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit while leaving the results to God, many Corinthians came to faith in Christ and were subsequently baptized. Paul persisted in the face of opposition. And then number four, you see, Paul trusted Jesus who was with him and had gone before him. Look at verse 9. It says, One night the Lord said to Paul in a vision, Don't be afraid, Paul. Listen, you go on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Paul, I want you to hear this. I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed, we're told, Paul stayed another year and six months. Now, whether that's another year and six months or whether it was a year and six months in total, we're not sure, but for a year and a half he stayed teaching the word of God among them. And I can't help but wonder if if Jesus encouraged Paul in this way with these words because Paul maybe was battling some discouragement and worry. Now, no doubt he was thrilled to see people coming to faith in Christ, but at the same time, there was this growing movement against him, and who wouldn't feel, who wouldn't feel that if you had this growing movement targeted at you? Who wouldn't feel that? Who among us wouldn't be discouraged or concerned by that? I've heard it said that for every word, I don't know if this is true, I've just heard this enough times where it seems true. I think it's generally true in my own life. 
I've heard it said that for every word of discouragement, a person needs 10 words of encouragement. Because the disheartening things in life tend to affect us on a much deeper level and stay with us much longer. So maybe Paul was beginning to contemplate the next move or even wonder whether he should leave Corinth altogether. And yet after hearing from the Lord, you see he just grows reinvigorated and rejuvenated. And he didn't leave Corinth, but chose to stay another year and a half, continuing to serve the Corinthian people by unpacking for them the wonders of the gospel. And I just want, church, I want these words that Jesus spoke to Paul to minister to you this morning, even as they ministered to me this week. Particularly these words, I am with you. I am with you. I'm with you. Because remember, the witness of Jesus is central to who he is. When he was born, you know, he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And throughout his life and ministry, he was with us in ways that revealed God's nature and God's love for us. He identified with us in his death, though he himself was innocent and without sin. And after rising from the grave, before ascending back to heaven, he gathered his closest followers. And he reminded them of his authority over heaven and earth. And he told them to go throughout the world, reaching and teaching people, helping them to follow Jesus also. And he says, and behold, behold, he says, behold, he assures them, behold, I am with you. I'm with you. I'm with you to the very end of the age. If you are a Christian today, I want you to know beyond all doubt that, that Jesus is with you. You may feel alone sometimes. You may question your circumstance or even the direction of your life. You may doubt your effectiveness when it comes to ministry or witnessing or talking with people about Jesus. You may wonder, what am I doing with my life? And why? When Paul heard that Jesus was with him, that made all the difference. Yet not only with him, Jesus had also gone before him, for Jesus tells Paul that he has many people in the city of Corinth, either people who had already come to faith in Christ or would soon come to faith in Christ, presumably through Paul's ministry. We won't unpack all of this just for the sake of time, but But even when the Jews brought Paul before the tribunal in verses 12 through 17, Gallio, the proconsul, he immediately just dismisses the case. And in a very, very strange twist of irony, 
the violence they intended for Paul, they took out on one of their very own. As they took the leader of the synagogue, presumably, so Crispus was the leader of the synagogue. He comes to faith in Christ. Sosthenes becomes the leader of the synagogue, and Sosthenes gets beaten. I don't know what's behind all that. But for Paul, it was a call to trust Jesus who was with him and who had gone before him. And before we go this morning, I want to come back around and just try to ask and answer the question of why. Meaning, why was Paul so engaged, so engrossed in the ministry of the gospel? Why was Paul so driven in this way? And I believe it's this. Paul was occupied with the word because the word had occupied him. In fact, later when he wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, he said just as much. He said, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I think Paul was so blown away by Christ's love for him, he chose to live for Christ in loving response. Love is the best of all motivators. The last thing I would want you to hear today is that I would, want, I would not want you to leave this place feeling guilty that you don't share Christ enough, and so you go out trying to share Christ motivated by guilt. Instead, what, I, what I'm hoping you see is I'm hoping you see the love of Christ for you, and that having come to see how much Jesus loves you, and all that Jesus has done for you, and all that Jesus is doing in your life right now, and all that Jesus will do in the days to come, that that would be enough to motivate us to go and live it. Love is the best of all motivators. To know that we are loved, to know that you are loved, that alone can prompt a life of love. I mean, think about I was, when, when, when Sally and I were dating, it was not hard for me to stay up until the wee hours of the morning talking to her on the phone. It was not hard for me to drive an hour out of my way to get five minutes with her because we loved each other and the love compelled me. It drove me. And if that's how we respond to the love of another human being, how much more to know that you are loved by God 
Not because you've made yourself lovable or because you did anything to earn it. It's because God is love and he demonstrates his love even in and through Christ. The scripture says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now by his own testimony, Paul thought of himself as the chief of sinners. But he knew that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and thus he clung to the Savior's love. He trusted Jesus, and therefore he entrusted his life to Jesus, which, by the way, is really what it means when we talk about believing in Christ or coming to faith in Christ. It's this this moment of life where you say, my life is yours. Here you go, Jesus. I want you to take ownership of my life, and I follow you. Paul, on another occasion, he would talk about his ongoing struggle with sin. How it was just a constant battle for him to do the good he wanted to do and avoid the bad. How many of us can relate with that? And so he comes to this moment where he says, Wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me out of this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul was seized. He was seized by the ministry of the gospel, yes, but even more so, he was gripped by the Savior to whom it points. That's why he was willing to reason with people who thought differently. Why he focused his message on Jesus. Why he persisted in the face of opposition. Why he trusted Christ who was with him and went before him. Because when the reality of God's love in Christ grabs hold of your life, you cannot help but live it and let it be known. so I pray, I pray this is your reality today. I would pray that each one of us, that we would be occupied with the word because the word has occupied us. Amen. God, we thank you for your love. I would pray that you would remind us of your love even today. Even the songs we've sung already today have just, we've delighted in your love. Behold, what manner of love the Father has has given unto us that we, even we, should be called children of God. And such we are. So may this reality of your love continue to grip our lives, grab hold of our lives, transform our lives, that we might live it and make it known.
for the glory of Jesus and to the good of people near and far. We ask these things. Amen.